Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Hey, uh, good afternoon. It's good to be with you all. I understand that you guys are starting a, a summer series in the Psalms. Um, and this morning, we're going to continue in Psalm 51 with David's prayer of repentance. But before we get into it, uh, let's pause for a moment and just let's just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we come before you, Lord. Um, we thank you. We thank you that, that you are God that we can go to, that we can go to with our, our, our worst sins. With our, with our darkest secrets, Father. We know that you, um, that you invite us to do so. And so I pray for your help as we get into your word, that um, by your spirit you bring conviction, conviction of sin, Father, but we'd also have great confidence in your, in your abundant love and steadfast mercy. I pray that you would, would tear things down that need to be torn down and to build up things that need to be built up. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So Psalm 51 is a very personal psalm to uh, some of us. It's been with us while we were in the middle of some, some very difficult times, times when our hearts are at their most vulnerable, times when we feel the guilt of our sin. It's in those times that this psalm has come to our rescue. It, it, it gives us a voice to those, it gives a voice to those feelings of anguish that come when we're confronted with how, how bad we can be. And this psalm is a very popular psalm, mainly because of the scandalous nature of its backstory. It was written by King David after his sin with Bathsheba. And for those who aren't familiar, this psalm, uh, the, the story can be found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It's spring and the Israelites are at war. But this time, uh, David's not in battle with the armies he saved behind in Jerusalem. And, and one late afternoon, David finds himself walking on his roof. And he spots a, a beautiful woman bathing. 
And so he asks his servants about her and, say, and they say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's Bathsheba, that's Uriah's wife. So David sends for her, brings her into his home, and he sleeps with her. And, and he thinks he got away with it until he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. And that's a problem because Bathsheba's husband Uriah is away at war. So if Bathsheba's found to be pregnant, everyone will know that there's something shady that's happening. And so the cover-up the cover begins. David calls Uriah back, from, back home from battle into the palace. David asks him about how the war is going, and they're exchanging small talk. Uriah is done giving David a report, and he tells him to go home to his wife and wash his feet, which I guess is like the Hebrew equivalent of go home and put on some Marvin Gaye and, and give your wife a back massage, and let's just see what happens, right? He's hoping Uriah will go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And everyone will assume that the child that she's pregnant is Uriah's. But Uriah refuses to go home. In his mind, it was not right for him to be home with his wife while his brothers and his colleagues are out at battle. So he stays. So David tries another approach. He has him over for dinner. He gets him drunk and he sends him home, hoping that one thing will lead to another and David's sin will be covered. But still nothing. Uriah is a good and faithful man. And he stays on the couch with the servants instead of being at home with his wife. David is desperate. So he writes a letter to one of the commanders in the army, Joab, telling him to put Uriah in the most dangerous part of the front line. And when the fighting starts, to withdraw all of the men so that Uriah is, would be left without support and killed. He sends this letter by Uriah to Joab. And Uriah hands the letter to Joab, not realizing he just handed over his own death sentence. And everything goes according to David's plan. Uriah is killed in battle. Bathsheba mourns. And as soon as she's done, David takes her to be his wife. The, the, the idea here is that he needs to do all of this so quickly that everyone would assume that the baby was his after they were married and his infidelity would be hidden. Later, Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him a story. He says, there was a rich man and there was a poor man. The rich man had flocks and herds, and the poor man had one little lamb. But he loved that lamb, and he treated it well. One day, the rich man had a guest come in. But instead of from taking from his own flock to feed the guest, he took the, the lamb from the poor man, killed it, cooked it, and then fed it to the guest. Hearing this, David is enraged, and he yells, this man deserves to die. And Nathan snaps back, you're the man. And as we're reading this, we're half expecting Netflix to ask you if you want to watch the next episode. Because the whole thing plays out like a TV drama. But, but in our familiarity with the story, we lose sight of the devastation. A woman was exploited. A conspiracy was hatched. A commander's integrity was compromised. A man was killed. A baby dies. And a family is ruined all because of David and his sin. And when he comes face to face with what he's done, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote a prayer of godly repentance that serves as a model for us when we sin. 
See, repentance is all over the Bible. It's part of what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's the first words we see from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to get into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in order to be saved, Jesus calls people to repentance, but it's also not a one-time thing, right? We see this in Revelation 3, where Jesus is writing letters to the churches, telling them to repent. The first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the church door was this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended, it that it, he intended that the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. Repentance is our godly, good response to the sin that we see in our lives, and it's ongoing. And this psalm shows us what it looks like. And the structure of the psalm is actually pretty straightforward. We're going to see five different aspects of David's repentance. We'll see David progress from confession to forgiveness, from forgiveness to restoration, and from restoration to testimony and praise. With that, let's read again the first six verses. I'm reading from the ESV, and it says this. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he'd gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So right from the beginning, we see David confessing the seriousness of his own sin. Now, this is important for us because we each have this internal defense attorney, right? And often at the moment, there's an awareness of something that we did wrong. This attorney hurries to our defense to distract us, to minimize it, and to excuse it. All with the purpose of convincing ourselves that our sin isn't that big of a deal. But David does none of it here. In verse 3, he says he knows his sin, and it is ever before him. Wherever he goes and whatever he does, he's, his sin is constantly in the back of his mind, torturing his conscience. And I think we, we, we all, to some degree or another, know what this is like. There's something that you've done that's produced guilt that just haunted you for it. And one of the ways that we try to deal with it is distraction. We distract ourselves with work or events. We fill our times with social media and YouTube videos. We fill the silence with podcasts and television. Anything we can do to drown out the sound of our conscience, because if we sit, sit, sit still in silence, that guilt that we're running from will catch up. That's not the only thing. David knew the ultimate judge he needed to answer to. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this raises an obvious objection because I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah. What about Bathsheba? What about their family? David sinned against all of those people. And it sounds like David is ignoring all of that sin that he committed against all of those people and saying, I've only sinned against God and God alone. I don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. David, in the context of poetry, is using hyperbole to remind us that as egregious as our sin is against humans, it's ultimately God whom you've offended because every sin is against God. God, as creator, has a law and a standard, and every, violation, every sin is a violation of his good and perfect law. It means every angry, impatient thought that I have on the freeway is, is, against, is against God. 
Every time I see something that someone else has that I want and covet, it's, a, it's an offense to God. Every time I'm not quite telling the whole truth, it's an insult to God. And so David here is elevating all of our sin, even the smallest ones, to treason against God. And it teaches us that there's no room for minimizing our sin in confession. And I think part of the reason for this is found in what he says next. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David traces all of his sin back to the moment he was conceived. From the first moment of his existence, sin was present with him. A lot of times when we sin, we, we shift the blame to someone or something else. I wouldn't, I wouldn't yell at my kids if they were more obedient. I would be a better husband if my wife respected me. I would be more honest at work if I wasn't under so much pressure. David could have done that. He wouldn't have committed adultery if Bathsheba wasn't bathing on the roof. He wouldn't have had to cover up his sin if Uriah would have went home like he was told to. We excuse our actions by attributing them to something or someone outside of that, outside of ourselves, right? I did that. I said that. I went there because something pushed me in that direction. The problem is not in me. The problem is around me. And with that perspective, when we sin, it's really easy to say, that's not really who I am. That thing I did was just, it was just a freak accident. It was just a one-off. I was just hungry or tired or stressed. That's not a reflection of who I am. By that logic, David was a good guy that just murdered people sometimes. That doesn't make any sense. And David doesn't fall for it. He says his actions are coming from somewhere deep within him. He murdered because he's a murderer. It wasn't an anomaly. It was him. It was several moments where lust, deceit, selfishness, and the pride in his heart was put on full display. Our sin comes from us. We lie because there's deceit in our hearts. We lust because there's adultery in our hearts. We snap in anger at our kids because there's impatience in our hearts. These moments aren't exceptions. They're us. The sins we commit are just the tip of the iceberg of the sinfulness that's still there. That's why he says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in a secret heart. David is telling us where, where God's attention is. David's actions were horrible, but God's gaze probed deeper. The word for secret heart here is also used to describe something that was covered up or hidden. The idea being that God is focusing his attention on the part of David that he hid from everyone else around him. The urges, the feelings, the emotion, the thoughts that David kept out of sight. His outward sin was just the tip of a deeper mess within him. And this is what, this is what God was pressing into in those moments. God sees into the places that we try to hide, those areas of sin in our lives where we don't want to even acknowledge that they exist. Maybe there's something that you stashed away. Maybe God's pointing at that thing right now saying that, that right there. 
I want, I want truth there. I want integrity there. I want that thing uncovered and drawn out. And maybe right now your inner defense attorney is at work too, giving you all kinds of reasons why that thing could or should stay hidden. Because it's painful dealing with ourselves. But there's help. And it's in the first verse of the psalm. The psalms are poetry. And with poetry, form is function. So there's intent not just in what's being said, but in how it's being said. That matters right from the start in verse 1. After the introduction of the psalm, we have a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of thoughts is stated and then repeated in reverse order. Verse 1 says, have mercy on me, O God. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The structure of the thought of this, this structure of thought is all throughout the Psalms, and it helps us understand what the psalmist is trying to say. Because the main point of the chiasm is right in the middle. God's steadfast, mercy, steadfast love and abundant mercy. David's hope of forgiveness is based on the character of God. The word here for steadfast can also mean loyal or unfailing. Abundant mercy is highlighting the immense amount of mercy he has towards us. This is the understanding of God that precedes honest confession. We have to know that for his people, God's love doesn't fail and his mercy doesn't end. And we'll, we'll say that we know this. But in practice, we act like God's love for me is unfailing only when I'm doing everything right. When I'm not struggling with sin, when I'm doing good, God's love towards me is loyal, as long as I deserve it. But to hear it, but to hear it that way defeats the whole purpose it's there. Our love tends to be fickle. We love things and then we don't. That's why we have trends, right? I, I flip through my yearbook and I cringe. Back in high school, we loved our velour track suits until we didn't. I was a loner, but put me in some beyond baggy jeans from Miller's Outpost, and I felt like a king. If you, if you weren't born in the 90s, you probably have no clue what I'm talking about right now. I loved them. The same thing goes for Live Strong bracelets, stuffed crust pizza, and Will Smith. We loved all of these things until we didn't. We are fickle people with wavering affections. And thank God he's not like us. In this psalm, David is confessing the worst thing he has ever or will ever do. And it's followed by an, an even worse string of sins to cover it up. He hadn't been a good husband or king or leader. He's been horrible at all of those things. Yet he's convinced that despite his deepest failures, God's love for him has not changed. That was the basis for his appeal. God's love is steadfast. It doesn't change based on how well you're doing at the moment, and it doesn't fade when you blow it. This is the confidence we need that helps us unload all of our dirt in brutally honest confession. David is dealing with his sin before God with total honesty and transparency. He holds absolutely nothing back. And it's rooted in the confidence that once God has set his affection on us, he will not change his mind. He knew what he was getting into when he saved us. And it's his steadfast love that tells us that he's not changing his mind now. The steadfast love 
and tender mercy of God invites us to come to him. So if there's, if there's something in your life that you feel is, 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 is just so bad or so ugly or so dark that you can't imagine bringing it to God in confession, I'll, I'll just remind you of something Tim Keller said. You are more sinful than you know, yet still more love than you can ever imagine. So maybe it's time just, just to lay it down. Now here, it's, it's easy to focus on the big things, right? Murder and addictions. And then our internal, uh, our internal attorney says, well, I haven't killed anyone, so this isn't for me. But confession isn't only for the quote-unquote big things. Maybe you need to pause and confess the sinful impatience with your spouse or with your kids. Maybe God is pushing us to do something that we refuse and you need to stop and confess it. Maybe we've had a greedy or selfish approach to the things that we have or the things that we want, and it's time for confession. See, our, our God wants us to come with him with all of our junk, even in our worst days and our worst sins. Let's pause here for a minute, because when it comes to confession, yes, we should confess our sins to God, but there are cases and instances when we should confess our sins to another person. Ephesians 4 tells us that we should be forgiving one another. Now, this implies that when we sin against someone, we should go to them so that they have an opportunity to offer forgiveness. But in addition to that, there's James 5.16. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it's working. This tells us that we should be a people that confess our sins to each other. Sin loses its power when it's pulled into the light. I have guys in my life that know everything about me. And there's freedom in that. There's freedom in grabbing a friend and saying, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I'm failing. Here's what I did. Here's where I need help. I could really use some prayer about this stuff. In that act alone, the Bible tells, there's, tells us that there's healing taking place. Next few verses, we see David return to his original request in verses one and two. It shows us what happens when we lay out our sin in honest confession. There's forgiveness. Let's read it, verses seven through nine. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 7 begins with a series of petitions that runs all the way to verse 12. And the first thing we see here that David is asking for God to do is to purge him with hyssop. Hyssop is a common shrug that, that, that shrub that's referenced a few times in the Bible, but almost everywhere it's mentioned, it's included in the act of ceremonial cleansing. In Leviticus 14, we see instructions for a person that has been healed of leprosy. The priest is supposed to go outside the camp to inspect the person, make a sacrifice, and dip a hyssop branch in the blood and sprinkle it on the healed person, and then pronounce that person as clean. This is the image that David is referring to in verse 7. In his mind, way before Jesus on the cross, he understands that because of his sin, a sacrifice needs to be made. A sacrifice that God will provide, a sacrifice that God will apply. And as a result of that sacrifice, God will turn to David and say, clean. 
And that's the pronouncement that David wants to hear. That's why he says, let me hear joy and gladness. The basis for David's cleansing and forgiveness is a sacrifice. David didn't know the details of this, but we do. We know that Jesus is that sacrifice. We know that it's Jesus that gave himself for our sins. It was Jesus that was broken so that we can be healed. And it's because of Jesus that God the Father can turn to us no matter how deep your sin is, no matter how dark the stain is. It says, no matter how far you've gone, you're still clean. You're still spotless. You're perfect in your mind. It's, a, it's, it's amazing to me that David can spend five, five verses tracing the depth and the seriousness of his sin. He had a deep conviction of his sin. But he had a deeper confidence in the grace of God. And in one verse, pushes all of that sin aside and says, but if God purges me, I will be clean. The word for purge here literally translates to descend me. The sacrifice of Jesus is so complete, so sufficient, so thorough that it totally undoes our sin. No trace of forgiven sin is left behind. And if this, if this wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. There are some things that, that feel like they leave such a deep mark or such a deep stain that no matter what we do, we're still stuck with the remnants of what we've done or the guilt on our conscience or the burden that we have to bear that's so close to who we are that we can't even fathom a life that's free of that weight. And it's in times like this where we have confidence that our God does nothing halfway, not even your cleansing, that you will be whiter than snow. And that's what's implied here with verse 8, where David asked God to hide his face from his sin. Everywhere else in the Bible, God turning away his face is a bad thing. It implies a break in fellowship or relationship. It means being cut off or cast out. And that's what David is asking God to do to his sin. So when God turns his face away from our sins, he is, out of his own volition, actively choosing not to count our sins against us and to treat us as if they don't exist at all. And as incredible as it is, David shows us here that it's insufficient. He doesn't stop there. David is going to build on his confession, build on his forgiveness, National restoration. Let's take a look. Verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, if you look closely at the second halves of each of these verses, you'll see a pattern. There's a reference to a spirit and then, then the word me. You can see it. Renew a right spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The emphasis of these verses is an action by God within us. And this is the next step of David's repentance. And it's in the form of a series of requests for God to do something within him. 
And it starts with asking God to create in him a clean heart. Now, the word here for create is the same word used of creation in Genesis 1. David is asking God to step into the madness and the chaos of his heart and create order and peace and goodness in only the way that God can. New desires, new affections, new priorities. Then he asks, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Now, in, in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes upon people for a specific, to empower them for a specific purpose. And now, David would have been familiar with what had happened to Saul. The Spirit came upon Saul, but left because of Saul's disobedience. So it seems that David is recalling that instance and asking for that not to happen to him. He's saying he needs God's empowering presence to remain with him. He needs God's help. Lastly, he asked for God's, God to restore the joy of his salvation and to sustain him by giving him a willing spirit. So he's asked for transformation, for strength, and for diligence. And he's asking for these things because David knows he can't fix himself. And David is, is explicitly stating a reality that if you've ever struggled with sin, you, you know all too well. If you've, ever, if you've ever been there, you know that when it comes to the sins that we wrestle with, if God doesn't step in to do something, it's going to happen again and again and again. Like, I can't fix me and you can't fix you. So he's not just asking for God to forgive. He's asking for God to intervene. And this shows us that true repentance is not satisfied with only forgiveness. True repentance wants to be changed. It says, I don't just want to have the stains of sin removed. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't commit the sin at all. I think when it comes to our repentance, we can assume that we're, that we're on our own. Um, my son did a t-ball a couple years ago. And I remember that, that, that as he ran out onto the field, I became immediately aware that he had no clue what he was doing. It was his turn to bat, and the coach was giving all the kids nicknames. And so he asked Noah what he wanted to be his nickname, and Noah looked at him and said, I'm Batman. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he struck out, stood there for a couple seconds, and ran to second base. <laughs> right? He was wrong on, on, on so, so many levels all at once. He was playing in the dirt. He was pulling up grass. He was doing cart, cartwheels in the outfield. And at one point, he decided he wanted to play chase, so he just started running in the outfield towards the other end of the park. I, I wanted him to pay attention. I wanted him to have fun. I wanted him to be respectful, and I wanted him to learn the game, but I, but I realized very quickly that he needed help. So I wasn't in the stands, shaking my head in frustration and disappointment, just waiting for him to figure it out on his own. I was on the field with him. When he sat down to pick grass, I said, no, son, stand up, pay attention. When he wanted to play chase and ran away, I went and got him and brought him back. When it was his turn to run and he couldn't find, find first base, I ran the bases with him to show him where to go. See, God, God works in us to bring out what he requires. He corrects us when we're wrong. He picks us up when we fall, and he grabs us and brings us back when we wander off. 
And by his Holy Spirit, he runs with us to show us how to run the bases. This is what David is asking for. This is what David is praying for. He wants God to change, to strengthen, and to sustain him. Repentance is a catalyst for change in the lives of Christians. Those things that we see in ourselves that make us cringe don't have to stay that way. There's power in Christ to change them, to fix what's broken and restore what's been lost. And that inward change leads to some very outward expressions. Let's read them, verses 13 through 15. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What David is saying here is, is, is actually pretty simple. The forgiveness and restoration he would receive would be a testimony to the people around him. Our God saves, and, he, and his grace covers even the worst sins, and David thought that his life would be an example of that very thing. Every sinner saved, every sin forgiven is a story about the grace and mercy and love of God. Our lives sing about the goodness of our God, and David says that's going to draw people in. In our repentance, we aren't only forgiven, we aren't only restored. He says that we're useful. And I'm saying that because this text is showing us that even after great sin, we aren't useless, we aren't ruined, we aren't spoiled. God can bring beautiful things out of our worst messes. And look at what David does, says he'll do after he's forgiven and restored. Teach, sing, declare all things he's doing because he's experienced a depth of God's grace and he can't keep it to himself. He's not hiding what God has done for him. The church is a people that acknowledge their sin together, confess their sin to each other, and rejoice out loud in sins forgiven. This is testimony and praise, and it pushes against a culture obsessed with appearance. This is everywhere, but it's, I think it's especially here. In Orange County, there's an obsession with presentation. I grew up in the Inland Empire, and my Orange County neighborhood is great, but it's weird. Every house in our neighborhood has to have a white picket fence, a perfect lawn, and a weather vane that is totally useless. Like, I don't walk outside in the morning with my robe, take a look at the weather vane and say, oh, well, it sounds like, or it seems like there's a squall blow, blowing in from the east. Like, it serves absolutely no purpose. This isn't, this isn't Little House on the Prairie, right? We're in Mission Viejo. The weather vane is pointless because it doesn't, but it doesn't matter because it's not about function, it's about appearance. We fixate on how things appear, spending so much time, so much effort building in our lives the equivalent of weather vanes, just to manage how we look and whether or not our lives are presentable. This text is saying to drop, drop the facade. Our preoccupation with how we look creates an illusion that we are people that don't need the grace of God that we serve. If we're honest, we are all of this. But isn't that part of what makes our God so glorious? 
because he comes to people like us in our mess, forgives us, transforms us, and over time makes us less and less messy. So let's, let's, let's be honest about our sin. Let's work for a culture of confession and repentance so that we can celebrate the evidence of God's grace. This draws people in because it shows that if there's grace for us, then there's grace for them too. This, this prayer of repentance that our sin will ultimately, this prayer of repentance prays that our sin will ultimately be used by God to bring more people to himself. And David could have stopped there, but he doesn't. He moves on to talk about sacrifices. Let's see it as we wrap up in verses 16 through 19. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says something that might be a little surprising. He says God doesn't delight in sacrifice, which is interesting because God commands them. <laughs> the book of Leviticus is full of them. But I think what David had in mind was this. God wouldn't delight in his sacrifice because he was more concerned with David's heart. That's why he says that the only thing he can do is offer to God his broken and contrite heart. The only thing God is looking for from us when we sin is to grieve it and to feel remorse. And that personal reality is then applied to the entire nation of Israel. He says, God will not delight in sacrifices until the nation is restored. The walls were rebuilt. Then God would delight in that offerings. God doesn't want outward actions. He wanted an inward brokenness and contrition. As we wrap up, I think this is an important place to, to pause because I think when there's something in our lives that we, we know we need to address or, or, or we know that there's a sin that needs to be dealt with, one of our strategies is to throw ourselves into some kind of other Christian activity, right? Like there's an ongoing struggle that I don't want to deal with. There's something in my life that I don't want to confess. So I'm going to try really hard at something else. I'm going to work really hard to do something else to relieve the guilt that I'm feeling. I'm going to start serving. I'm going to get in Bible study. I'm going to start some new discipline. God is pressing in our lives. Instead of confronting it and addressing it, we run 100 miles an hour in the other direction, hoping that by our sheer effort and sacrifice, we can get rid of the guilt. We can get rid of the pain. The text says that that doesn't work. God isn't entertaining outward religion until something is done in the heart until the confession takes place, until there's repentance and restoration. Look at the ways David describes how he felt with his sin. He says it was ever before him. It was torturing him. He says he couldn't hear joy and gladness. He was numb. He says that his bones were broken. He was in pain. He said that he's lost the joy of the gospel. He was saved, but his soul was sour. My own life and, and my experience in church tells me that there are people in this room feeling all of those things. Hiding their sin and feeling horrible because of it. Trying to deal with their sin by distracting themselves with noise and busyness and excuses. And I don't want to 
I want to generalize things because I think there can be various reasons a Christian can feel depressed or apathetic. They could be physical or emotional or, or mental. But this psalm also shows us the reality that a reason you might feel miserable is because there's something in your life that needs to be dealt with and you've refused to, and you've refused to, to do it. So maybe there's something that you just covered up inside that God is pressing into. Maybe there's some hard conversations that need to take place. Maybe it's time for you to just pour out your soul to God and another person. I've had, I've had more experience hiding my sins than I would like to admit. So I can say from experience that it's better in the light. The process is hard and painful, but the fruit is sweet. As bad as we are, as bad as things that we've done are, they're not bad enough to overshadow our Savior. Isaiah tells us that Jesus tells us of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wood he will not quench. That means he's strong and he's faithful and he has the power to save and restore, all while gently putting us back together. That's our that's our God. That's our Savior. We can go to him when we're doing well, when we're doing great. And we can go to him when we're failing miserably at everything. That's what he's inviting us to do. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.